Welcome back to the Lancaster School District Podcast, School Buzz. I'm your host, Rebecca Cooksey, and today we're going to talk about special education. So I have Rosemary Napoleon here. So Rosemary, tell us a little bit about your journey in Lancaster. Okay, well, I started about 15 years ago as a fieldwork student um, when I was getting my degree in school psychology. So I started off as a fieldwork student, became an intern Then I was hired as a full-time school psychologist with the district. Um, Then I became a coordinator of student student services back then, as well as ECE, early childhood education. And then about five years ago, I then became the director of special education. So I've been here a while. So you have a degree in psychology? School psychology, yes. Okay. So you came, all your whole career has been in special ed? Yes. All special ed. All right. So never a classroom teacher. Never a classroom teacher. Only a school psychologist at um, early childhood, elementary, middle school, alternative ed. So I've been um, through all. A lot of places. Yes, many. (laughs) (laughs) So um, what qualifies a child for special education? So there's 13 eligibility criteria. When we do our assessments, we then determine. So By law, we have to have a credentialed school psychologist complete the assessments. Mm -hmm. So once they complete that assessment, they see if the student is eligible, does have a disability under one of the 13. But it's two-pronged. It's not only if you have a disability, but also if you require special education services. So many students who may have a disability may not require special education services, so then get supports in general education through, it could be accommodations through the SST process or maybe a 504, but they don't require the services um, through a special education teacher. One of my kids had that. She is dyslexic, um, but also gifted. And so... She really want. She wanted an IEP. She was like, a strange child. She wanted an IEP because she wanted the extra support with you know her spelling and her reading because it takes her a lot longer to read. And they said, "No, you don't qualify because you're fine. Yes. You have straight A's. You don't need special education." But yes. she was very concerned that you know she wanted to make sure that she had enough time to read because it takes her longer. Right, and we're lucky now that. Um it's changed where a lot of students get accommodations, whether you have a disability or not. Right. So it's it's definitely has changed in the last few years before you had to have something identified in order to get those accommodations. So you said, you said that there are 13 different qualifications. I know one is speech and language because my children, mm-hmm. all four of them needed speech and language. I, I remember when Samuel was three and um, my father-in-law said, um, he has a speech problem. I said, <laughs> Oh, my God. He does not. My child is perfect. There's no way he qualifies for that. I had him tested just because I was going to prove my father-in-law wrong. Right. And they're like, uh, yeah, he qualifies. <laughs> I'm like, but I understand him. Like, moms always do. Right. So um, I had three with the same speech problem. They couldn't do their R's and their L's. Mm-hmm. Just And then the last one was fine. And then she started stuttering. And I'm like, you know what? Oh. I, I give up. Yeah, speech and language is a big um, eligibility in preschool. Mm-hmm. I think that's when parents see something, because we can start assessing at three years old. Right, and that's how old he was, three. So I think parents then say, well, they're not talking. I should refer them. Something's wrong. So we do have a lot of students eligible for speech and language in the earlier year. So what, what else could call, qualify a child for special um, ed? Students with autism, with a specific learning disability, intellectual disability, um, Vision impairment, hard of hearing, emotional disturbance. 
That's a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I have dyslexia in my family. It, would d- being dyslexic qualify you for special ed? We look at it under a specific learning disability. So we look at it under a phonological processing and a visual, uh, visual processing. So there are assessments that our speech, I mean, our speech pathologists actually do test as well as our school psychologists. So there are specific um, assessments that will look at a reading uh, disorder. Okay. It's under a phonological disorder. Yeah, that's that's a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do special ed teachers get specific training so they know what to do with kids? Yes. Yeah, so they do have a credential in special education, and there's two different credentials. There's a mild moderate, um, which works with more of our um, students that are participating in general education. And then we have a moderate to severe credential with students who are at an alternative functional curriculum. So there are different programs um, and then along with training, and then they come with they come to us, and there's induction if they're new, um, that can support them as well. And I know um, CIA does try to um, match them with another special education teacher, so they do have training once they come here. And then our SELPA has trainings for teachers as well as um, we have trainings, and then. Our department in special education can support as well. I would imagine that as a special ed teacher, you would have to keep up your skills because as we get more research on how the brain works and how to you know work with special disabilities, you would have to keep those skills up ongoing, right? Yes. And then this year, um, we actually had UDL training for special education teachers. So what is UDL? Um, Universal Design for Learning. And that helped our teachers find uh, the barriers to move a student forward. So really finding those um, strategies that will help students be more successful in general education. Because that's kind of where, you know, we really want students to be successful in. So is the plan, if, you know, you, you have a, you're in special education, is the plan eventually to try to get you into general education? So special education are services, we're not programs. So we're all about how we could support students. So technically the law is, they want all students in general education mm-hmm. with supports from special ed. So um, it, it just so happened in California, they started special day classes. And you know we want kids to have access to the core, especially in English language arts and math. Because that's where our state testing, because our kids in a special day class or students with IEPs are still required to take the state tests. Yes, they are. (laughs) And there's, you know, they're they're expected to learn the same material. So the more students have access to the state standards and ELA and math, the better off they'll probably do in the statewide assessments. Right. If they've never seen it, they're not going to be very successful with it. Exactly. So we're really trying to, to talk about that we are services and how to, what services could we provide students to be supported in um, the most least restrictive placement? Now, sometimes students do require a more restrictive placement in a, a special day class um, or even a functional class, um, or students may require a lot of support in general ed. So it's just finding um, what students need individually. And I think that's where the kind of the base of IEPs are from. It's individual needs, and we need to talk about that in our meetings. And I think as we get better technology, we can individualize more of education for every student because every student has strengths and weaknesses that we can work on. Definitely, especially communication. Um, I'm finding that a lot of our students, it's just a communication difficulty. Um, And using technology has been a great source, or even listening to books has been a great source. And it opens so many doors for our kids. Well, and I told you, I have dyslexic people in my family, and my one son listens to audiobooks all the time. Mm -hmm. Probably a better reader than I am because he's he's so 
diverse in his what he listens to. Mm-hmm. I think, gosh, I, I need to read more <laughs> to keep up with him because he and I just think that that's such a wonderful tool that he can access the access literature where before it would it takes him a long time to read so then he kind of get you know frustrated and get bored so right no definitely um when i was a principal at ocotillo we had an autism program and i remember the kids were using this peck system where what they could point to a picture mm-hmm. because they didn't have language right um they could point to a picture that would kind of tell the teacher what they were feeling or what they needed. Yes, that's our icon exchange. And um, it does it's useful for communication because we want students not only to communicate here in the Lancaster School District, but also in the community. And seeing pictures that are so generalized across different settings really helps kids communicate here at home in the community. So we do implement that. I'll pair it up with language because I don't want um, just because you're using icon exchange does not mean we still don't try to elicit language because we want kids to still try to be verbal so when we use icon exchange we show it and then we have the kids say it Mm -hmm. still and it does help with um, even snack time with our more functional kids like it's a good good way to practice um, kind of choices Um, a lot of students have notebooks just on the variety of, of pictures that they could use to communicate great uh, what does a, cl- a special ed classroom look like? How is it different than uh, a general ed classroom? Um, it just depends on what the classroom is really structured for. So we want, again, we want kids in general ed as much as possible. We want kids to receive their services. So we call them specialized academic instruction. Those are kind of the services that students um, require from a special education teacher. So we have programs as simple as resource teachers who can push in or pull out our kids during their designated specialized academic instruction. And we really try not to make one size fits all. It's individual. What do you need to meet that specific goal? Some kids may need 15 minutes, some may need 30, some may need 45. So it's really individualized. Then we have um, mild, moderate um, SDC special day classes. And those are for students, again, with mild to moderate disabilities who have access to core, who teach all um, content content subjects. And then... um, We also have our more functional, our moderate to severe. So those students are in an alternative um, curriculum. We use Teach Town in our our district. So they would have that. And then we have more specialized programs such as um, emotional disturbance classes. Um, And some students, Palmdale, we have our... Uh, Palmdale Discovery Center for students with autism. So, th- and then we have Linda Verde Center, who mm-hmm. are, is more for profoundly delayed and medically fragile students. So, it could range from as simple as a resource all the way up to a more Linda Verde Center type setting. Now, do special ed teachers have less students on their their roster? Yes. Than a general ed teacher. And yeah. then there's a para at each in each classroom. So, our moderate to severe have two paras. And then our mild mod have one para, and our resource have one para. So it, it is a smaller teacher-student ratio um, initially, but we also, uh, you know, it is a smaller classroom. Yeah, because you've got those individualized goals that you've got to meet. So you've got to meet one-on-one with each child. Yes. Yeah. So as a parent of with a child with a learning disability, I know that when I was home with my kids, I had to spend a lot of time reading. We spent lots of time reading them. I would read three pages, Samuel would read one. I would read three pages, Samuel would read one, just to, so he could read and get through things. Um, but I had to spend a lot of time 
supporting my kids at home of just making sure that they were okay. They're all fine now. They're all college graduates. They're all fine. (laughs) But it took a lot of time to get them to develop their skills because we were dealing with dyslexia. So what else can a parent do with a child that has a special needs? I think parents first need to understand the disability. Um, sometimes I feel like we talk in this jargon that we really need to bring it down to a parent level and really have the parents understand what is wrong, you know, what's different about your child's learning. Um, every child can learn, it's just how best they could learn. Mm-hmm. So once you know kind of the processing disorder, then you can match the intervention. So when parents understand what what the difficulty is, then they could understand how to work with their child at home. It will take patience and it will take work and it will take repetition. Um, Some kids need a lot more and you'll see the student can learn it one day and the next two days it's gone. So then you had to repeat it. So I think parents understanding the accommodations in the IEP, um, understanding what the teacher's working on at school, understanding the goals, and also not getting the child frustrated. I think that's also important because um, our teachers do a great job of modifying the work, but at one point, you know, kids can get frustrated because, um, you know, they're not learning the same. So we don't want kids to shut down and we want them to love learning. So it's a matter of how do we keep them motivated? And I think parents, that's what parents said. How do you keep my child motivated to keep learning um, is probably something that parents should should definitely spend some time on. And that was tough. I remember when we were going to Samuel, and he was just having a hard time reading. But we read all the time. And I remember his mm-hmm. third grade teacher asking him, do you think you're a good reader? And he said, I'm a fabulous reader. <laughs> and she's like, okay, well, his self-esteem is fine. Right. But <laughs> um, I know what we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the kids liked mm-hmm. and then develop on that. Because you want to make sure that they're still loving loving to learn. And that's so important. Um, but it can be very frustrating because I remember when we found out he was dyslexic that I was a teacher. Mm-hmm. I knew what to do to teach people. And I was still frustrated. I mean, that repetition. And so I think that a parent that doesn't have that education background, wow, that would be really tough. So do we provide um, parents with maybe some resources or some training when they have children that, with disabilities? If the SELPA does have a parent community forum so they have monthly meetings where parents can go and share and talk to other parents um, on students with disabilities uh, teachers in at school can have individual meetings with the with the uh, parents um, we also provide um, support through just conversations at IEPs and school psychologists can work and speech pathologists um, many times consult with parents on how to work with their students, especially like over the summer. I know when I was at preschool, um, speech pathologists used to do a great job of just giving parents packets, kind of like, okay, yep. <laughs> say, these, say these letters over and over again. So our speech pathologists do a great job of doing that. Um, and I just think we have to do more of that probably. Yeah, I think that's so important. And to have the parents follow up because I remember getting some of those packets and like, eh. uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> But you got to do it because, uh, right. you know, you got to practice those R's or we used to have popsicle sticks that uh-huh. they'd have to like push their tongue against, you know, <laughs> weak tongues, I guess. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's a lot of work and parents have a lot on their plate when they get home too. Yes. Um, we can only expect so much. And at school, we try to give as much and, and continue to communicate with the parents as much as we can. What is the most challenging part of your job? And then what's the most rewarding part of your job? Um, The most challenging part of my job is uh, probably litigation. Mm -hmm. Um, We spend a lot, I spend a lot of time 
dealing with um, due process filings. And, you know, parents have a right to. But sometimes I feel that we spend a lot of time and money on settlements that we could have been resolved without attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think attorney fees, as much as I'm sure they work hard, but they're, they're so sometimes we could figure out solutions without costing it so much money from public funds. And, and it does. It, it can be very costly. And I'm not saying that our district is perfect by any means, but I think there's a lot of times I wish parents would come and talk to us and talk to me about solutions. I wish there was something in the law that said, you know, you have to talk to the special ed director before, you know, <laughs> filing. Um, because I think, and there's times where we were just at disagreement and the district has a position and we have to use our educational, professional knowledge and parents have another um, way they want to go. So I'm not saying we have to give in to all parents. I'm just saying a conversation. And sometimes it's, okay, we've done what we can and this is your next step. So I, I spend a lot of time um, defending what we're doing and sometimes we do a great job and sometimes they're not, all, not all IEPs are perfect. Mm-hmm. But that that hurts sometimes when I see the costs of how much a settlement agreement is at the end. Well, yeah, I think it would be more beneficial if we would go to mediation first instead of having a lawyer involved. Because if mm-hmm. we had somebody that would just be a mediator, solve what do what's best for the child with what we have in place um, would be a lot better than because attorneys cost one hundred and fifty dollars an hour, and that's hard to get around. Very yes. And I've seen them even go up more and more and more. So I think in the last couple of years, even their fees have gone up. And it's it's money that we're taking away from kids. Mm-hmm. So that that does concern me. But on the flip side, I feel when I first started, the a lot of our due process filings were because parents didn't feel heard. Mm-hmm. And parents um, lost trust in the district. And we started facilitated IEPs um, about three years ago. And I have not had a filing where parents have said that they are do not feel part of the team. Good. So I do feel like we've changed our culture and parents know that in IEPs we have conversations. It's not it's partly compliance check, but it's in a conversation where parents understand and they feel heard. And again, we don't need to agree at the end of the IEP our offer versus what parents want, but at least there was a conversation. And I have not had any filings where parents did not feel heard. So I feel like even though that was a, it's a huge issue at the beginning of my career as a special ed director, it has evolved into a, a positive at the end. That's great. So um, I feel that parents are feeling feeling heard again. That that's and so just from that new process, you think that they they feel more included. Yes, I feel that they're more included. Um, they actually could see in writing the strengths and challenges of their child, and sometimes um, we also kind of look at only what they can't do. We never look at what they can do. So in our new process, strengths is the first thing we talk about, and parents are sometimes happily surprised that wow, my child could do all of this. And we're and we're looking at IEPs being more positive and strength based versus um, weak based. So that that has been a huge change in our district, and a, and our teachers have done a great job of implementing it across across the district with IEPs. And I've noticed a huge change in what our due process filings are looking like. That's great because I know as a principal, there were a couple of IEPs that would wow. They would go on for five hours. I mean, they were just pretty contentious and you, you wanted to do the best thing you could for the child, but sometimes the parent would just not agree just, and they wanted something outrageous. Like I want 
a personal bus just for my child. Mm-hmm. Like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much money in the world. Right. But I also remember some really great IEPs where parents would come in and, you know, we just celebrate their child yes. and all the things that they had been able to do and the, the from where they were to where they were at the end of the year was just amazing, some of that growth. Right. And I think the facilitated IEP process also puts time limits on our IEPs. And it's okay if you don't get through the whole IEP because having an IEP after two hours, your judgment's not the same. Yeah. And people are tired and then emotions get high. So this kind of really helps us keep focused um, and really helps everyone have the conversation and talk and just talk versus, um, you know, having a conversation versus it's a compliance check and this is what I have to do. And you know, met all the IEP compliance and then closed the book. It's really having a conversation about a child. So that has been very rewarding in the last couple of, of years. I've seen a definite change in our IEPs. Great. And um, we've added psychologists and counselors to our schools now, so it, it helps a lot with supporting kids that have different needs. Definitely. We have a full-time psychologist at every school. Um, two middle schools, I believe, have two full-time psychologist mm-hmm. um, and one and the other two may have like one and a half so we do have a lot of support in our speech pathologist because our increase in our um, speech caseloads we almost have one at every school almost um, because our needs of language is so big out here mm-hmm. in our district is there a reason for that that I think it has a lot to do with our socioeconomic mm-hmm. there's a lot of research that correlates poverty with language development and so a lot of our kids don't have that access to vocabulary and books and um, just having conversations right so we do find a lot of students have a lot of language issues okay coming in so not just like um articulation error errors but not access to the language to express themselves yes exactly okay All right. So um, thank you, Rosemary, for coming on the podcast. I want to give a shout out to our um, employees at the WWC, which is the Welcome Center. They went out for a um, community event. I'm not going to say this right. I'm not even going to try to say it. Day of the Dead celebration. Dia de los Muertos. Thank you. (laughs) It's like, I'm not going to say it right. Um, In Palmdale this weekend and handed out information about our, our programs and trying to get, you know, still some of our families from Palmdale over to Lancaster. So um, I appreciate them donating their time for that. All right. So our next podcast is about alternative education. As you tune out, please listen to Kelly Stock and the students at Sierra singing Simple Truths.